He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been the keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My brothers, my father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen, and from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among you, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Good morning. Just want to say a quick thank you uh, to you all for sending me to teach unexpectedly, I guess, with TLI uh, in in Serbia. And a number of you have asked uh, how did it go. And in simplest terms, it was it was a really remarkable trip, mainly because I got to teach there in 2018. And in just three years, there have been two graduating classes. It started again in 2015. And so when I taught in 18, there were no graduating classes. Since then and this year, there were two. And the work of God to shift the culture of the church there has been spectacular. I, I don't want to overstate it. <laughs> I don't speak Serbian. And so a lot of what's going on, I didn't even understand. But but it was easy to see the shift in the mindset of how big God is, how much he loves the church in Serbia, I mean, among the Serbians, and their willingness in the face of significant opposition to to pursue faithfulness to God in spite of whatever cost it might, whatever it might cost them. And so anyway, uh, thank you for sending me. Uh, thank you on behalf of the church. They asked me to 
to share that with you. Uh, thanks to my wife for holding the fort down, and thanks to you all for giving me an extra few days to overcome the jet jet lag. I I don't know if it's normal to experience it as dramatically as I do, but it, it is the case, although this time was, was much better. So because it's been a month since we've been in Genesis, I want to I want to start off with a, a quick recap. Welcome back to Genesis, by the way. The overall theme, which Matt creatively placed at the bottom of the screen every week, uh, our place in God's plan. That, that's been overall what I've tried to help impress upon all of us week after week over the time we've been in Genesis. Genesis establishes for all time God as God, the creator king and righteous judge of all the earth, the maker, orderer, and authority over all that has been made. Would you, would you figure out a way to lock that into your brain this morning and then, and then allow your heart to be stirred by that? Because, you know, if I, if I, if I said, Hey, I'm going to introduce a guest right now, you know, he's got a, a PhD in this and he won the Heisman and he, he walked on the moon. You'd all be like, Whoa, let me, let me hang out with this guy. But, but hear what I just said. Genesis has established God as God for all time. The creator king, the righteous judge, the maker, orderer, and authority over all that has been made. Now that's, that's a guy you want to hang out with. That's a guy you want to get to know. Uh, on top of that, Genesis has established for us that mankind is a divine image bearer made by God for his glory, but also tragically as one who had given into sin and consequently stands under the unbearable wrath of God. Well, that's not it. Genesis has also established the good news, the gracious, unbreakable, merciful good news of the promise of God to redeem fallen mankind through a descendant of Eve. And all of that's just the first three chapters. <laughs> Welcome to Genesis, right? So from there then, we learned that God would fulfill his promise of redemption through a covenant that he would make with one man whom he chose. Abram didn't choose God. God chose Abram through whom to fulfill his covenant promises. The covenant included the promise of countless descendants, a permanent home for them to live in, and above all, the promise to be their God. For Abraham's part, he was to receive the covenant promise in faith. God's, God's job was to give the descendants and the reconciliation and the land out of the hands of enemies to be their God and Abraham and his offspring. Their part was to trust in God, to receive the righteousness of God through faith. Well, by God's miraculous hand, Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, since chapter 37, we're, on, we're in the 47. Since 37, we've been considering the story of one of Jacob's sons. and His name is, kids, Joseph. Almost from the beginning, the story of Joseph turned tragic. Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they decided that rather than speak to him, they would remain silent, grumbling among themselves, and rather than allow him to remain in their household, they would sell him into slavery and then lie to their father about it, telling, that, telling him that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. 
There are two main things that the text tells us that caused that much disdain in the brothers for Joseph. First, Jacob, their father, made it continually and abundantly clear that Joseph was his favorite son from his favorite wife, giving him a special coat so that no one could forget. And second, Joseph had been given by God two dreams. In the first, the dream was that he would rule over his brothers. They didn't like that. And the second, that he would rule over his parents as well. Well, if that weren't uh, enough of a tragedy in his life, having been sold into slavery, he was wrongly, in, in while a slave in Egypt, imprisoned. He was wrongly imprisoned for something he didn't do. Eventually, though, if you've been here, you know this, things took a pretty dramatic turn. Joseph was released from prison on account of his God-given ability to interpret the dreams of the highest man in the land, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then, in yet another remarkable twist, Pharaoh was so grateful and amazed by Joseph's God-given ability to interpret the dreams and, and make a plan to respond rightly to them that he put Joseph in charge of the entire land of Egypt. This is quite a story, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is remarkable. So finally, during the time of a severe famine that was predicted and prepared for because of Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, famine is everywhere. Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt to get food. And because Joseph was in charge of its distribution, they stood before him. Oddly, however, they did not recognize him. They didn't know it was him. After running them through several secret tests to determine whether these were the same treacherous dudes that had sold him into slavery, or rather if God had instead made them faithful and changed their hearts and granted them repentance, Joseph found that he, God had done that, that they had become faithful men. And having found that out, he revealed himself to them. In dramatic fashion, the brothers were reconciled to one another. And with Pharaoh's blessing, they then sent for Jacob, their father, in order that the whole family might dwell together in Egypt. Well, that's where we pick up this morning. Hopefully, much of that is familiar to you. If you're a guest, that's where we've been. And and so here's where we're going. At the ripe old age of 130, Jacob made the journey from or the made made the journey to Egypt with all of his family, the text tells us, and all of his possessions. They left nothing behind in order to be reunited with his long lost son and fulfill the second dream that God had given him. Well, in this short scene that Shanna just read for us, we find another family reunion and dream fulfilled. And in it, the main thing for us to see is this. This is the second thing I really want you to get your head and heart and life around. The main thing for us to see is the unshakable, even if unpredictable. Who could have imagined that God would fulfill his promises in these ways? Uh, even if unpredictable, faithfulness of God. The main thing for us to see is the unshakable, even if unpredictable, faithfulness of God. And, and, and so here's how this lands. And I want to want to establish all of this in the sermon, but here's how this lands. You are building your life on some future hope. You are, and so am I. We all are. What is that hope? Is it your retirement, your social security? Is it your health insurance? Is it your kids? 
Is it your job? Is it, what is it? You are, you are all, we are all building our lives based on the hope in some future thing. The question is, what is it? There are only two options. Hoping in the promises of God, in Jesus Christ, or anything else. Those are the only two categories God's word gives us. You got to pick one or the other in the promises of God through Jesus Christ or anything and everything else. And the, the main thrust of this text is to help us to choose wisely. In pa- it is passages like this one that show us the rightness, the goodness of hoping in God and the ridiculousness of hoping in anything else. So let's pray that through the sermon, God would grant us increased confidence in his promises above everything else. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you that it is a fun and familiar and sweet story. Thank you that almost everything in it is is smooth and desirable and, and just such a clear a clear description of your kindness and faithfulness and the fulfillment of the promises that you have made. This this family has been through a lot, some by their own doing and some by the evil doing of others. This chosen family, and yet here we are in one of the sweetest sections of the Old Testament where little by little and sometimes faster and faster your covenant faithfulness is being seen and experienced by your covenant people. God, help us to understand that all all of this lays a foundation for us to know that you still interact with us as your covenant people in the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to see plainly that it was Abraham, Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and Joseph and the brothers' job and, and all of their descendants to hope in you, to trust in you even though they didn't understand fully what that meant. God, help us to see now that we do through Jesus Christ. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, because of your promises, that we can be reconciled to you and know you in your glory. Thank you that it is passages like this that lay the foundation for that. Help us to see this as one big, grand story where you get all the glory. We simply trust to receive what you have offered. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, it's a simple story, this passage. It's exciting. Kids, if you are reading good stories, and I hope you are, and your parents are reading them to you, if you're reading good stories, this is the kind of story that your good stories are based on. It has all the good stuff in it. It has tension and drama. It has nobility and kindness. Good is good and evil is evil. It has intrigue and And resolution, what is the story? Let me retell it briefly before we look at the themes that are meant to drive our lives. Here's the story. As Jacob and his 70-person caravan and a whole bunch of sheep and goats and stuff approached Egypt, Jacob sent a particular son ahead. He sent Judah on ahead to let Joseph know that they were near and, and where they would be in this place called Goshen. Upon hearing this news, the text tells us that Joseph got his chariot ready and rode out to meet his father and family. In an emotional reunion, after 23 years of hardship, Joseph's part, almost all 23 were filled with hardship, and 23 years of believing that his son had been torn apart 
eaten by wild animals? On Jacob's part, we read these words in 46.29. Joseph presented himself to his father, Jacob, and he fell on his neck. And he wept on his neck a good while. Filled with a gladness that he couldn't have imagined was even possible just weeks earlier, Jacob felt himself ready to die, the text says, and be with the Lord. I'm ready to go home. Regaining his composure, Joseph promised his family something. He said, hey, hey, listen, listen up. I'm going to go before the ruler of this land, the one, the only one in this place that is above me. I'm going to go before Pharaoh on your behalf. I'm going to speak with him for you, that he might extend to you the blessing that this land has to offer. Joseph also instructed his brothers on how they might introduce themselves to Pharaoh and navigate their encounter with him. Chapter 47 opens with Joseph doing exactly as he said he would. Before or going before Pharaoh on behalf of his family. He, he brought some of his brothers with him and explained their situation to Pharaoh. Upon being summoned and, and then questioned, Joseph's brothers revealed their purpose and profession almost exactly as Joseph had told them to. And in an act of magnanimity, ignoring the fact that these men were foreign shepherds, the text makes Oddly, strangely, it seems weird that it's in there, but the text makes plain Egyptians didn't think too highly of shepherds. They they admitted that they were, and again, ignoring these facts, Pharaoh offered the best, best of his land to them and put them in a position of high honor, even caring for his flocks. Well, finally, Joseph brought his father before Pharaoh. Just consider for a minute how strange this encounter must have been, the, the two most powerful and significant men in Joseph's life, both of whom favored him for their own reasons, both of whom were, in an important sense, by God's design, brought under Joseph. They met here for the first time. Joseph's true father, advanced in age, weathered by life's challenges and ready to be with the Lord, repeatedly showed honor to, bestowed blessing upon, and even Lamented before Joseph's surrogate father. Once again, the passage ends just as Joseph said it would. It says this, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land, as Pharaoh had commanded. It's a neat story. It's a sweet story. It's a simple story. It's an unexpected story. But there's not a lot in it that's hard to understand. It really is heartwarming. But what are we to make of all this? What what does this mean for you and I? It must have been pretty remarkable to live through it and experience it and to watch these things unfold. But what are you and I, this many years, meant to make of all of this? There's a handful of themes on display here that I want us to see. They concern God. They concern God's people. And they concern the world that we live in. And they are as true today as they were back then. They're as relevant today and in some ways more so as they were back then. Our main applications, if we're to take this text and this story and rightly appreciate it and appropriate it to our lives, it's going to come from wrapping our heads and then our hearts around these themes and then testing our lives 
against them. I'm going to give you a series of questions to ask yourself. I'm going to go through a small handful of themes, and I want these questions to be rattling around in your mind. Do you understand them? Do you understand these themes? Do you see them in the text? Do you believe them? It's another question. Do you love them? God has given us these things to appreciate. And here, here's another one. With those, do, do you understand them? Do you see them in the text? Do you believe them? Do you love them? With those questions, are these themes the lens through which you see the world? Do you, do you look at your afternoon today as you maybe watch the Vikings or go for a walk or whatever you do? Do you see what you see through the lens of these themes? Are you living consistently with them? That's how we rightly appreciate passages like this in the Old Testament. Here's the first one. And I hope you say, Pastor Dave, I've been here through Genesis. This is maybe the 48th time you've shared this theme with us. That's the point. God did not just give us one short story on the family of Abraham. He didn't give us one little story on on, on Joseph, he gave us story after story after story in large measure to show us this one thing. And so in every story where it shows up, I'm going to keep repeating it to you, so deal with it. And the first is this. The first theme ought to be the most familiar to us. Remember our place in God's plan? What's our place? Largely, it is to trust in the curious faithfulness of God. That's the first theme, the curious faithfulness of God. We see it primarily in the full fulfillment of Joseph's dreams, his second dream, and the curious part in the manner through which it was fulfilled. Back in chapter 37, God gave Joseph two dreams. I told you that earlier. In the first, his brothers would bow down to him. That was fulfilled in chapter 42. The second dream is that his parents, his father too, would bow down before him. That dream was fulfilled here. The key for us to see is that this was not the first time, and it would not be the last time that God was faithful. Through 47 chapters of Genesis, God has never once failed to keep his promises. Not one promise, not one failure. Think about that for a minute. In 47 chapters of Genesis, God has never failed to keep a promise. And the Christian claim, the biblical claim, is that he never will. But why would we believe that? That's the question. That's why this shows up over and over and over. That's why this theme is so critical. Why would we believe that? It's one thing to claim it. It's one thing to be batting a thousand through 47 chapters. But why would you believe that he is never going to be unfaithful? Because to be a Christian is to bank your eternity on that. Why would we believe that? It's a key question. You got to settle on that. I have to settle on that. Well, two reasons in particular. One is because he's God. (laughs) When God says something, we should believe him because he's God. That's the nature of being God. You can say things like that and people should believe you. But the second reason, and the more relevant one to this text, is because of the abundance of the one-sided evidence we have in Scripture. In a court case, people both there's two sides and they both present evidence for their claim, and inevitably there's some type of evidence on both sides. This is a unique court case I'm asking you to take part in. There's only evidence for one side, the perfect faithfulness of God, the unwavering faithfulness of God. We have 47 chapters of, without exception, 
evidence that God keeps his promises. Our evidence is the ever-increasing and uninterrupted stack of promises kept. We have one more here. A theme here is the faithfulness of God. It is unwavering. God's faithfulness is certain, but it's also curious. It is curious in that he typically keeps his promises in no ways, in ways no one would expect. Is there any chance Joseph could have imagined that God would keep his promises to his grandfather in the way that he did? Through betrayal, slavery, imprisonment, being forgotten, being remembered, being given the power of God to interpret dreams of the highest ruler in the land of Egypt. Through all these things, God was faithful, though curiously so. So what do we do with that? We remember these things, Grace. You remember these things. We need to fight to remember these things. As you hold fast to God's promises to you, or as you fight to hold fast to them, remember these two things. God will be faithful to his promises without exception. Without exception. Even if it's in an entirely different way and in an entirely different timing than you expect or imagine. It is good and right for us to trust God and to build our lives entirely upon his promises, in part because of the uninterrupted faithfulness of this, of, that we see of him in stories like this one. You with me, Grace? The first theme is the perfect, though curious, faithfulness of God. Here's the second, another familiar one. It's God's sovereign reign. The next main theme for us to see is familiar in Genesis. God's sovereign reign. The things that have taken place in the lives of God's chosen people have not ultimately been by chance or the result of human choices and cunning. Those things play a role, but they're not ultimately why the things that have happened have happened. They have ultimately been the result, the text makes this plain, of God's sovereign reign. Proverbs 21. I want to give you two examples of this. Proverbs 21.1 says this. The king's heart, think Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. That's neat. Kids, you, you know, you're in a pool or in the bathtub or in a lake or something and scoop up some water and you look at it. You can make the water do what you want in your hand. That's how the most powerful people on earth are to God. He, he can just move his hand and, and make them do as he pleases. Here's another one. Isaiah 40 or 54, 6 and 7 says this. So remember why this family is in Egypt? Because there's famine throughout the land. There's no food. They're going to die if they stay where they are. And so God holds kings in his hand. He sovereignly reigns over kings. Here's what Isaiah 54 says. I am the Lord. This is God speaking, of course. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In other words, God is sovereign over rulers and hardships. And are there any clearer passages in the Bible of that fact than this one? He is actively ruling over rulers, king of Egypt, and he's actively ruling over this famine and bringing sweetness in the midst of it to this chosen family. He made a promise to Abraham concerning his offspring, 
In this passage, God kept this promise through turning the heart of a king to their offspring and by granting them the ability to predict and navigate a worldwide calamity. So remember this as well, Grace. What do we do with this? What do we do with stories like this? Remember this. The sovereignty of God may bring with it this idea of God being sovereign. If you're a thinker, it brings with it all kinds of philosophical questions. It does. But it is the unmistakable teaching of the word of God. What's more, as we saw in Berea last week, it is unmistakably presented as a source of great hope and worship. It's not, it's not, it doesn't show up as a confusing thing. It shows up as a, a source of great hope and worship for God. It is because God is sovereign that he can be perfectly, that he can be perfectly even though curiously faithful to all of his promises. Let me, I, I, I don't think this is, I think this is a good example. My favorite football team won yesterday. Uh, in fact, they won all of their games this year, which is a pretty remarkable thing. But in almost all of them, I'm sitting here thinking, this isn't going well. This is not going to end well. Throughout the entire time, there is this sense that oh, we're going to lose this one. We deserve to lose this one. We're, we're terrible. And then, and then this year, at least, they've, they've squeaked out every win. So there's this feeling of it could go either way. And the fact is it, it could, they're not that great. um, When we read this, the story of this chosen family in Genesis, there, there can be this similar feeling of, I don't know, man, this doesn't, this doesn't seem like it's going to end well. He's, he just got sold by his brothers into slavery and he's in prison. He's going further away from the promised land. And I don't know exactly what this prison was like, but I'm guessing this is going to be tricky to have a kids as many as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. How how could that possibly work? And it, it might feel the same way as cheering for your favorite football team or sports team, but in no ways is it. Whereas my team sort of stinks, but is is getting lucky uh, remarkably, and I'm thankful for that. But but anyway, as they sort of stink, but they're getting lucky, God doesn't. He's doing this to teach us that there is no pit so deep that he cannot rescue us from. That's awesome. <laughs> that is That is good news. He is able to be perfectly faithful because he is entirely sovereign over all things. It is his sovereignty that makes his promises trustworthy, if he lacked power, if he lacked the ability to bring about his will, he might have he might be batting a thousand through forty seven chapters in Genesis, but man, that's a that's a big gap to go from that to trusting him with our eternity. And so again, because of these things, it is good and right that we trust wholly in God. Here's the third theme. It's a weird one. I, I don't know that I've ever brought this up in a sermon in twenty years before. But it's in here. It's all the way from 46.31 to 47.4. It takes up quite a few verses in this passage, and it's this idea of cultural differences. That's a weird one, right? Have you ever heard cultural differences preached on from Genesis? I, I haven't. But, but it's in there. It, it, it might not seem like a really big deal, and in some ways it isn't. And yet, in this passage, the text gives a decent number of verses to it. This, these cultural differences, this, these different ways of viewing the world, we see it in the Egyptians and the Israelites coming together. These differences, it's important for us to understand as 
as Christians, they stem largely from Genesis chapter 11. It's the Tower of Babel, where God dispersed and conf- dispersed mankind in confused languages. And many of the cultural differences that linger today are still the result of that time in, in history. From that moment on, many different cultures formed and made certain aspects of life on earth more challenging. It might, again, it might seem like a small thing, and, and, and it is. We don't, you know, we're not, you don't form a new denomination over your view on cultural differences, but, but it is something the text introduces. And so let's consider it for just a minute. So what do I mean by this, these cultural differences? From 46.31 to 47.4, the point of that chunk is Joseph subtly trying to prepare his brothers for and guide them through their interaction with the ruler of a country in which, look at 46.34. Is that up there? So it's just this weird 46.30. Yeah, it's just this weird, like, what is that all about statement? It says, so Joseph's trying to get his brothers ready to interact with the ruler of a country in which every shepherd, his shep- his brothers were shepherds, they had been, we find out, for their whole lives, in which every shepherd was an abomination. What a weird statement. The whole point is there were there were differences. They viewed these things differently. It's also clear that even though Joseph was God's anointed, he was deferential to certain customs among the people among whom they were sojourning. Why does this matter? What difference does this make? Two things. First, it matters because it is a reality in the world we live in today. These cultural differences exist. The first time I remember really grasping this and, and, and feeling it, not just sort of intellectually getting the concept, was a, a friend of mine was a, a missionary in the Middle East. I think I've I maybe have shared this example in, in a sermon before, but she was over there and, and doing her best to share the gospel with all who would listen. And she was living there long term and, and had, um, you know, had to make her life there. And so her routine was get up in the morning, do some kind of exercise, take a shower, and then and then go and buy uh, groceries, get get the stuff she needed for meals and things like that. And and she did this for some time and <clears throat> went to the same uh, vendors, I guess you would call them, to get her bread and to get get the stuff she needed. And uh, at, at some point after doing this for a while, uh, one of the guys she would buy something from just. As she told it, she sort of sheepishly, sort of embarrassedly, but graciously said, I need to, I need to tell you something. You, you seem, you seem like a really nice person. You, you, but, but you're making a big mistake. He says, the only, the only people in our culture who come out, the only women who come out in our culture with their hair wet, like she would after taking a shower, are, are prostitutes. And so every morning when you come out like this and come through town and, and show yourself like this, you're, you're putting off something that I don't think you want to be putting off. You say, you should know that. That's an example. Like we would never think of that. We, it just never occurs to us. But in that culture, it was really harming her witness. Here's another one. It just happened in, in Serbia. Apparently in Serbia, you don't talk about burping. It's not funny. It's not polite. You just, you certainly don't do it in public and even in private. It's not something you would really talk about. I don't really understand why that is or what, what difference that makes. But what I do understand is that the one of the missionaries who was over there helping with the school was in the, in the graduation was telling 
a story of the history of the school. It started just before World War II, and it was telling about the early students. And in the story itself, like this was written down by by Serbians, an important part of the story involved a student who burped. And he thought, wow, that's pretty funny. I'll tell that. And and everybody will get a chuckle out of it, and then we'll go on with the graduation. But you could tell it it did not land the way he meant it to. He even went back and forth with his translator over whether he should say that, whether he should translate it or not. And But again, just another silly, simple example of how a culture, cultural differences makes a difference. It, it, was, it was different words and different expressions and different mannerisms. You know, thumbs up means something different in other cultures than it does here. And, and different jokes and different topics, they mean different things in different cultures. So one, that's the world we live in. That matters. But two, why does it matter? Here's the second thing. It matters because rightly loving people often means being aware of the cultural differences between us. Now, this is not to say that every aspect of every culture is equally truthful and honoring to God. That's not my point. My point is, though, that rightly loving people often means being aware of the cultural differences between us. This is true in missions, like I just shared in the two examples uh, a minute ago. It's true also in marriage, for instance. Even if both the husband and the wife grew up on the same street in the same Midwestern town, when they got married, they're joining together two different cultures. Inevitably, one of the families placed higher emphasis on punctuality than the other, or achievement than the other, or creativity than the other, or bluntness in communication, my family, than the other. or godliness, or athletics, inevitably you're merging two cultures together. And to love your spouse well means, write this down, husbands and wives, young people, for when you get married, it means that to love your spouse well is to get to learn as much of their culture as possible for two reasons. One is to learn from and celebrate and appreciate and appropriate the good. And secondly, is to graciously and kindly and lovingly and prayerfully admonish the bad. Uh, We we bring them in and we evaluate the cultures and we learn all that we can. I love that Jerry's family is more musical and... And and mine wasn't. My ears still hurt from listening to my family sing. But I love that. I love... but, But... in the wrong way, it drives us apart. And, and so it is true of missions, it's true of marriage, it's true of your job, your work. It was true of Joseph as they navigated the differences between Egypt and the Israelite traditions. The end result, according to God's grace, of him doing this skillfully and lovingly was the furthering of the blessing of him and his family, as well as the furthering of the blessing of Pharaoh and all of Egypt. Okay, here's the next one. Godly responses to common grace and unbelievers. <laughs> That's a theme in this. Another theme worth noting is that the is that that of blessing others for the common grace. So this is unbelievers, unbelievers for the common grace of God upon them. Jacob, the patriarch of his family, had seen a lot of hardship in his life. I, I could give you a list. It's tragic, including the rape of his daughter. More importantly, though, he experienced the mighty hand of the power of God. For these reasons, both the weathering effect of hardship and trial and the empowering effect of being with God and hearing from God and seeing God's faithfulness, 
For these reasons, he stood before Pharaoh with a different posture. He wasn't as impressed. He wasn't as deferential as his sons. They, they referred to him, they referred to themselves before Pharaoh as your servants. Jacob did no such thing. He was less deferential. He was less formal. He was polite, but not impressed. Though in earthly terms, Pharaoh was the superior, Jacob was, is portrayed in this passage as the one in a higher place. Nevertheless, he repeatedly put a blessing on Pharaoh. Jacob recognized the kindness of the Egyptian ruler by God's hand. He recognized God's favor in allowing Pharaoh to be blessed through his son, Joseph, and therefore he did not hesitate to bless Pharaoh twice. So here's the point for us. Whatever goodness we find in others is the result of the grace of God in their lives. Whatever goodness we find in others is the result of the grace of God in their lives. And so when you see an unbeliever not sinning as much as they possibly could, praise God for his grace in their lives. Our tendencies are just to be annoyed with the sin, but just think of what grace it is that they're not worse than they are. Parents with your kids, (laughs) kids with your parents, friends with one another, employees with your boss, boss with your employees, whenever it's not as bad as it could be. This is an evidence of the grace of God in their lives. Praise God for that. Thank God for that. Realize that in that moment, you're getting better than you deserve, even if it's hard. If God did not restrain you and me and the unbelievers in our lives, there would be nothing but evil and wickedness. For that reason, it is right to acknowledge and encourage unbelievers when they act rightly. This is, for instance, why we pray for and submit to the governing authorities when they act rightly. This is, for instance, why we can partner with unbelievers at times in fighting for certain righteous causes. It is why we seek ways to honor our bosses, even when they are not trying to honor God, where there is goodness in their leadership. And it is why Jacob blessed Pharaoh. At least in his dealings with the chosen family of God, Pharaoh acted honorably. And so Jacob treated him as such and gave praise to God. Here's the third one. This is another one. This is like the the cult or the the cultural differences. This is an interesting one. It is the slow rise of Judah. We see this just barely mentioned in 4628. This is the second to last one I want to give. Very briefly, I want to point out the slow coming to the fore of Judah. Throughout the entire story of of Jacob's offspring, <clears throat> Joseph has taken center stage. Slowly, however, little by little, Judah is moving forward. Eventually, as we found out a few weeks ago when I was preaching, it will be through Judah's line, not Joseph's. It would have been unexpected if God had brought the Messiah through Joseph. He's the second uh, youngest. That's weird. That's just not how it's supposed to work. Well, Judah's the third oldest. (laughs) That's weird, too. But even though in the line of the text, it seems like Joseph might be the one, it turns out that it is through Judah's line that the Messiah would come. And slowly he's moving forward in this story and in this narrative. He begins to stand out in chapter 44 and takes another step forward as he is the one that Jacob sent to go tell Joseph they were in Goshen. The main takeaway for us here is to refuse grace, to put our hope in the appearances of things. 
that's more important than you realize. <laughs> it's more important than I realize. We need to refuse to put our hope in the appearance of things. Jesse's oldest son looked the most kingly, the text tells us, but it was the youngest, the little shepherd boy, David, that God chose to make king. The disciples were uneducated men, rejected by most, but they were the ones that Jesus chose to follow him. Paul was a murderer, a hater of the church and the gospel, but God gave us most of the New Testament through him. And Joseph was favored and prominent in Genesis, which is weird. And yet it was the thirdborn, which is weird, that God chose to bring the Messiah through. Practically, Grace, stop believing you can tell which of your neighbors or friends or family members or kids might hope in Jesus. We all do this, don't we? You've got that person in your life that you're certain their heart is so hard. They will never repent. They will never turn from their sin to Jesus Stop doing that. Do not look at the appearance of things. Your your sight is limited in many ways, and especially in spiritual ways like this. Stop, stop thinking you know who God is going to bring grace to, because to know the gospel is to know whatever you looked like on the surface, you are every bit as sinful in relationship to God as they are. Stop Stop thinking you know who God is going to save. Which of your friends or family members might hope in Jesus? Stop deciding who to serve. Based on how they look, oh, I'm sure that person's going to turn around and use my service for evil. Stop deciding who to serve. The, the command is not to examine someone's appearance and decide whether to lay your life down for them. Stop using common sense to decide which promises of God to believe and which commands to obey. Don't do that. <laughs> you do that. I know you do. I've seen it. You've been in my office trying to do that. And I have too. Stop doing that. The slow rise of Judah is simply, subtly, it becomes more prominent as the Bible goes on, but it is a simple, subtle, slow reminder that God does not work based on and is not bound by the way things look to us. Here's the last one. Perhaps most practically, and in some ways most importantly, we are not home yet. (laughs) This is the story of a sojourner, a family of sojourners, a family of wanderers. Jacob. Joseph and their whole clan were right now in this passage in a place of sweet blessing by an unbelieving Egyptian ruler. It was sweet. They had the best of the land. They were in a place where where they had come from, had no water and no place for their animals to graze. And now here they were in the midst of rivers and and they were going to be made in power over Egyptians. That's a crazy story, but it's one of great blessing. But Grace, you know this. The promised land of God was not Egypt. It was Canaan. (laughs) They weren't home yet. They weren't in the place that God had set aside for them. It was not meant, they were not meant to think of themselves as citizens of this land. Grace, don't try to make your home where you shouldn't. Above all, this means not attaching ourselves to transient things. It is good to enjoy God's blessing wherever it may be found, but it is a mistake it is, a bad, it is bad to mistake them for his greatest blessing. We are made to be in his presence forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And until we are there, there needs to be a longing in us. There needs to be an aching. There needs to be a, a wishing for something more than what we have. We're, we're grateful for the grace of God in our lives. Every minute is better than we deserve, and yet we were made for something more even than this. And so we need to stop doing the kinds of things that 
suggests this is our home. This is our final destination. To be entirely content in this life or even to seek entire contentment in this life is to be satisfied or seek to be satisfied by some idol. I don't know what that is, but if you're seeking full satisfaction in this life, you must be seeking it in some idol. Figure out what that is and kill it. We were made for more than this world has to offer. So even in God's present blessings, we must always be people of longing on this side of the new heavens and the new earth. So as you probably know, in less than a generation, this is sweet, right? In Egypt, they're seen as the favored family. In less than a generation, it all gets flipped up on its head, doesn't it? You know this story. The very next Pharaoh is going to crush and oppress them for centuries. One big reason that God inspired Moses to include so much of the sweetness of this story and this family with this Pharaoh is to provide proper contrast with the animosity of the next. Does that make sense? Are you with me? God God is giving them blessing in a, a place it shouldn't be found in order to help them to see it shouldn't be found there. You're not home yet. You can't put your trust in these things You can trust in me and in me alone. God's covenant people were not home yet in Genesis 47, even as you and I are not home yet today. We are meant to be a people who long for the return of Jesus, not a bit more health or wealth or comfort. Here's my conclusion. Three sentences. This story, along with all of the stories of Genesis, are meant to come together to give us complete trust in all of God's promises as he shows himself to be faithful and faithful, and faithful, and faithful. And all the stories of Genesis are meant to come together with all the stories of the entire Bible to give us an increasing understanding of God, ourselves, and God's offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so, Grace, trust in him today that you might be forgiven of your sins and brought into everlasting fellowship with God.